The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. Good morning and welcome. If you're new to Parkwood, my name is Jeff Long. I serve as the lead pastor. I'm responsible for preaching and teaching most every week. And we've been studying through the Psalms. So we are on Psalm 12. We're looking in Psalms in their entirety week by week. And this week we come to the 12th Psalm. If you don't have a copy of the Bible with you, I'd encourage you to take one from a chair underneath you close by. We're on page 452 in the chair Bible. And we'll be studying and looking uh, at Psalm 12 under the subject of faithful Lord. So Psalm 12 invites you, if you would, to stand as we acknowledge this is the Word of God. Psalm 12. To the choir master, according to the Sheminath, a psalm of David. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say with our tongue, we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan. I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side, the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. Let's pray. O Lord, we come now confessing that it is you and you alone who can keep and guard your people. We acknowledge the truth of your word that you will do so because your word is true. Your words are pure words. We thank you, O Christ, that you have arisen, that you have responded, and you have offered the way of salvation from sin and death. Yet, Lord, we live in an age and a time where wickedness and vileness and falsehood and arrogance abound around us. So take your word now. Speak to our hearts. Instruct us. Encourage us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. The main idea of this text and message today is that the Lord is faithful to keep and guard his own from the godless. You may have heard somebody say something like this. I wish it were like the good old days or the negative. Can things get any worse? This is the worst I've ever seen it. Brothers and sisters, the Bible has a way of giving us perspective. This psalm was written a thousand years before the birth of Jesus Christ. A pastor writing about 250 years ago said of Psalm 12, quote, this is the common complaint of God's people for all time. Another said about a hundred years ago, Rampant wickedness has shown itself 
in the manner described in every generation. We need not think that we live in a special time. We live in a unique time where sin abounds around us, but we need to take, as Spurgeon titled his sermon, Psalm 12 as good thoughts and bad times. We need to apply the reality of what is happening in the midst of difficulty. So two main points today in this text. First, the Lord must be trusted in the midst of godlessness, falsehood, and arrogance. So there are three things that are identified in these first few verses. First, godlessness. Verse one says, save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. So you hear the prayer of David in the face of need. He's crying out to God to save, to deliver, to preserve. He's acknowledging that only God can save, that the future does not rest with man. The future rests with God. So as we look around us and see the decline that is taking place, it should lead us as God's people to the same place that it led David. It should lead us to pray and to look to the faithful Lord. He says, the faithful have vanished. The godly one is gone. If you know much about the Bible in 1 Kings 19, Elijah is bemoaning before the Lord that he's the only one left, the only righteous person left. And the Lord rebukes him and says, there are still 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed to Baal. I just want to remind you today, when you read this verse, that there are moments when it appears that no godly people are left or it's just you or just a few people. Remember, God always has his people. But there's a particular confrontation here. And let's make sure we see it and we heed what God is saying. The tense of the Hebrew verbs here, the godly one is gone, the faithful have vanished, is stated in such a way in the original language to say this is not something that just started. What you need to think is a slow decline, a slow descent. That as wickedness abounds among the people in a society, the godless that the godless begin to affect those who claim to be the Lord's people. So verse one is not pointed at the world. Verse one is pointed at the people who claim to be God's people, who at this point in time are giving no evidence of godliness and have vanished as faithful people as they live among the children of man. Now, as we live in a difficult age, in a godless time, it would be easy for us to join with the godless and complain and bemoan the same things they do. A poor economy, heavy taxes, low wages, political injustice or corruption, unrest, against war policies. But here's how the godly ought to respond in a day like today. We ought to respond like David did. What ought to bother us is that God is dishonored. 
What ought to bother us is that Christ is rejected and the spirit is resisted and that the gospel is despised. We can rail at the godless world all we want to, but what we must do is we must pray to the Lord God to save, to save us and to save them, which means we must proclaim the gospel in the midst of all that is happening around us. In Matthew chapter five, Jesus talks about his people as being salt and light. And he warns of salt losing its salt, saltiness and light being covered up by a basket. When verse one happens is when God's people lose their saltiness. When God's people cover up the light in which they are to have. Nearly a century ago, J. Gresham Masham wrote, America is running on the momentum of godly ancestry. When that momentum goes, God help America. Well, brothers and sisters, you're seeing the evidences of that. You're seeing the evidences of less and less godliness and more and more godlessness. The fastest growing religious population in the United States are those who claim to have no religion at all. Now, why is that true? Because people began by buying falsehood. Verse two, everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart, they speak. Now this is speaking of the rampant nature of falsehood. And again, the implication is, is that those who claim to be God's people have joined in with everybody else and now they are uttering lies to their neighbor. We call it now fake news. You used to call it spin, now we're just calling it what it is, fake news. You know how you respond with fake news in today's society? With fake news. I, I, I'm not... I used to not say something like this. I have some particular ways I find out what's going on in the world. Um, if you're interested, I can tell you that later. I'm not going to make commercials for anything. But I have stopped listening to mainstream news. It's just discouraging. Because you can't believe, you can go from one channel to the next, and who's telling the truth? You know what the answer probably is? Nobody. Because we live in an age where it is okay to tell part of the truth. Well, my mama taught me that part of the truth is a lie. Flattering lips is the next thing. Falsehood gives way to flattering lips. Arrogance. And it comes from heart and a heart. That's literally what it says in Hebrew. Flattering lips and a double heart. A heart and a heart. Now, what this means is that people on one side put on a cloak of religion. But what they really want has nothing to do with the things of God. But they've learned this. They can get more people on their side if they'll put on a form of religion, quote a few Bible verses, and get people sucked in with them. Folks, you better watch it. You better watch it, particularly when people in power, whatever places they are, live a life that shows one thing and then they get up and start quoting the Bible. 
They know that we as evangelicals go, oh, did you hear that? Oh, oh, he quoted the Bible. Listen, a Bible, can, Bible verse can be a cloak. And you better pay careful attention to actually what is happening. Because deep down, here's what's driving falsehood. It's arrogance. And I, I would say what Psalm 12 is describing here is unrestrained arrogance. There's a prayer first. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. In, in, the, in the language, that's a, that's a bold prayer. It doesn't literally mean cut off lips or cut out someone's tongue. It means to cut off the voice of the wicked. Now, what is it that they're saying? With our tongues, we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Or as we like to say it in the 21st century, who are you to judge me? Job describes this as well. Chapter 31, verses 13 to 15. They spend their days in prosperity and in peace they go down to Sheol. They say to God, now this is not to each other. Here's what they say to God. Depart from us. We do not desire the knowledge of your ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit do we get if we pray to him? This is an arrogant way to approach life. Now, you don't have to pay attention long to understand that we have become a society of braggarts. The arrogance around us is sickening at times. And here's what this psalm is teaching, that, that, that people begin to believe that if they'll just speak loud enough and strong enough, they win. I want to describe to you one of the most disturbing moments I've ever had in my ministry. Let me give you the setting. Somewhere around 30 years ago, I'm a young youth pastor. We're having a youth retreat and we were concluding the night with a share time. Got a microphone set up in the room and we were allowing the young people one at a time to come to the mic and share what God had done in their heart throughout the course of the weekend. A young man in the youth group who had lived in obstinance, even arrogance, stepped up to the mic. We all thought, wow, God must be doing something. And he said, I, I want to quote a poem to you. Now, the moment he gave the title, my heart exploded as to what I knew was coming. He said, Invictus by William Ernest Henley. He quoted this from memory. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutches of circumstance, I have not winced or cried aloud. Under the bludgeoning of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horrors of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain 
of my soul. Yeah, it went that quiet in the room. And here's what Psalm 12 is saying, and let me say it clearly. That young man had the delusional courage to get up and say what millions believe in our culture. There are people in this room who resonate more with Invictus than they do Psalm 12. Oh, we say it much softer. It's much softer. You can do whatever you want to do. But deep down, we live in a culture who believes, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Brothers and sisters, that is unbridled arrogance. That is a refusal to state what is obvious. And that is that though you think we as followers of Jesus are the deceived, you are the deceived. And one day the sun will rise, not the S-U-N. One day the sun will rise and your hypocrisy, your deception will be consumed in full. Now, what do the believers do in the midst, in the face of godlessness and falsehood and arrogance? Here's what we do. We rest on this truth that the Lord acts and speaks according to his unchanging faithfulness. The faithful may vanish, but the faithful Lord will not vanish. He has not and he cannot. So we turn our attention from a truth-twisting, arrogant society and we now come before a truth-speaking God. And here's the first thing he promises, his protection. He says, because the poor are plundered, because the needy groaned. The first people that are plundered in a godless society are the poor. Those who, who cannot fend for themselves in an arrogant, prosperous world. But he's pressing beyond just the physically poor, though they show up time and time again in the Psalms. And in the context of Psalm 12, you've got to consider those who are poor of spirit, those who are looking at what's happening and, and responding to it in humility before God. It cannot lead to anything but groaning. And these groans are a cry to God, a cry that he hears and a cry that he responds to. And like a warrior, he hears the, the cry of the Psalms. And it'd just be interesting for you to take the first 11 Psalms this afternoon and just find every time the prayer come, arises, arise, O Lord, arise, O Lord. And here you have it, God speaking emphatically, directly here in the 12th Psalm. When he says, I will now arise. I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. Now, hold in your place there. This is not in your notes. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah 61. This is a prophecy of Isaiah. pointing us ahead to the coming Messiah. He says, 
The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Now, ratchet ahead hundreds of years from that point when Isaiah wrote this prophecy and find yourself in a synagogue in Nazareth when Jesus unrolls the scroll, reads Isaiah 61, rolls it back up and says, today this has been fulfilled in your presence. So what was Jesus saying? He was saying, I have arisen. You say, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're not to the resurrection yet. We'll get there. He is saying, I have stepped out of heaven into time. I'm here. God has responded. I am here to do the work of salvation. And Christ on the cross died a death that he did not deserve so that we might receive a salvation that we do not deserve. That's why we're referred to over and over again in the scripture as the poor. There's nothing we can do to buy it or earn it. And he has arisen from the grave to prove that he is Lord and he is Savior. You say, well, wait a minute. I I don't think this is exactly what this means. The Bible always has overtones to it. It means that, but it means something more. There's coming a day when he who is seated at the right hand of the Father will arise again and he will step back into time and make all things right. And he will protect his people forever and forever. Psalm 94, 14. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. The Lord will not forsake his people, but he will not abandon his heritage. All right, is that either true or not true? We know it's true for two reasons. One, God is faithful. We are not, he is. God is faithful and God's words are pure. Verse six, the words of the Lord are pure words that like silver refined in the furnace on the ground, purified seven times. The furnace reveals the pure words. Now what happens with God's words is is men add to it, modify it. But as, as difficulty comes, the word of God purified for us emerges with God's truth. In 1974, Time Magazine wrote an article about the Bible. And this is a secular article. And the question that Time Magazine was after is, what has higher criticism or liberal scholarship done to the Bible? Their conclusion may shock you. I'm reading an excerpt. The breadth and sophistication and diversity of all biblical investigation are are impressive, but it begs the question, has it made the Bible more credible or less? Literalists who feel the ground move when a verse is challenged would have to say that credibility has suffered. Doubt has been sown. Faith is in jeopardy. But believers who expect something else from the Bible may well conclude that its credibility has been enhanced. After more than two centuries of facing the heaviest guns that could be brought to bear, the Bible has survived. And perhaps it is better for the siege. Even on the critics' own terms, historical fact, the scripture seems more acceptable now than when the rationalists began the attack. So what, what, what is that saying? 
Well, it's actually agreeing with Psalm 12. It's saying that as things grow more godless and people appear to be attacking or abandoning the Bible, the reverse happens and the purity of the Bible arises. Psalm 30, Proverbs 30, verse five. I'll wait for you to turn there. You need to mark this in your Bible. Proverbs 30, verse five. Now, while you're turning there, there are multiple places where the Bible says the word is true or the word is truth. Statement of fact. Now, listen to what it says in Proverbs 35. Every word of God proves true. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. All right, let's do the logic. Let's do the logic when you put the whole verse together. When is the Bible proving true? When things get hard. When he is your refuge. When you take refuge in him, the word proves true. So let me just say it clearly, succinctly, and straightforward. A false gospel will not stand in the face of difficulty. It may prevail during times of prosperity among people. In fact, a false gospel is most dangerous when things are prosperous because they tie the gospel to the prosperity. But when things get hard, that will not last. The true gospel will prevail because, because his words are pure. Now, how is he applying the pure truth of God's word? That he, the Lord, is our present help. Right now, he is our present help. Look at verses seven and eight. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side, the wicked prowl as vileness is exalted among the children of man. Now, I love the honesty of the Bible. So some people get scared of, of just laying it out what the Bible says. Just lay it out there. Because here's what the Bible's saying. The Bible is saying we are surrounded by evil. The Bible is saying it wants to consume us. Do you see it? On every side, the wicked prowl. And while they're prowling to try to consume the godly, they're cheering each other on. Man, look at what we're doing in this awesome. This is so much fun. All this God stuff, you people are crazy. You're insane. Look at how much fun we're having. We're living it up. Don't get intimidated by that. You don't have to answer to that. They're gonna answer for that. Here's what you do. You realize that the Lord says he will keep them. He will guard us from this generation. How long? Forever. So let me just say it gritty and blunt. The godless can inflict difficulty, pain, and even death on us, but they cannot take us from Christ. They cannot. 
He will keep us forever. Psalm 1830, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for those who take refuge in him. Now, as I come to the application to ask the so what question, so how do we take this and apply this to our life? I'm asking a plural question here, not a personal question. Are we trusting the faithful Lord to keep and guard us from the godless? Here's what the Bible's teaching. I want everybody to look up here and hear me carefully and clearly. Part of the arrogance that's going on in society is autonomy. And that autonomy has swept into the church to where people have become their own little individual Christian who, who were responsible to God themselves. And we've taken some theological principles and we've warped them. Listen to me. Jesus saved you into his body. It's the church. You need the church while you're alive on this earth. You need it. And we need each other. So we together must trust the Lord to keep us and to guard us from the godless. Now, I need to explain what I'm not saying here. You have to do this now in the 21st century in your preaching. You're, you tell people what you're saying, now I gotta tell you what I'm not saying, okay? So there are five options in the midst of godlessness, five. There are more than that, I came up with five, okay? Number one, option number one in the face of godlessness, you can retreat. Retreat. Now here's how it's playing out in America. Churches have said, it's bad, it's bad, it's bad. We're gonna get together here with our people and we're gonna huddle down, we're gonna pray, we're gonna preach. The preacher's gonna get up and he's gonna rail about how bad and bad and bad and bad. Huddle right here. Now this is being re repeated and duplicated all across America. Question, what's happening to those churches? They're dying. So retreat is not an option. I'm not preaching retreat. Option number two, compromise. Here's what they're saying. You know, we've passed these new laws and if the church doesn't get with it, there'll be no church in 50 years, maybe 10. Better, you better get on with it. You better embrace same-sex marriage. You better embrace LGBTQ and all these other, you better embrace all that because if you're gonna be relevant, if you're gonna still be around here in years to come, you better, you better get with that. Question, question. I just have a question for you. There are churches that have embraced it. What's happening to them? They're dying. So retreat's not an option. Compromise is not an option. Number three, fight. You say, what do you mean? I mean that we become like the arrogant, lying world and we start operating like them to where we lie and speak evil about those who are evil and we fight them in the public square like a bunch of pagans. I'm just going to say this clearly to you. The church is embarrassing herself in some places. 
God never called us to act like the world. He didn't call us to fight fire with fire. He called us to uniquely be his people. Now, did Paul tell Timothy to fight the good fight? I'm gonna come to that in a minute. Here's a good fight. Number four, this one's subtle. What do you do in the face of godlessness? You look for another deliverer. Okay, folks, now what I'm about to say next is you just gotta listen to me. I've been hearing this my whole life. And if we don't elect the right person in this next election, the country's going down the tubes. Could, could I let you in on a little secret? You ready? The country's going down the tubes. Now listen to me. I'm gonna tell you right now with Psalm 12 as the ground for me to stand on why the country's going down the tubes. Because the godless are now prevailing among who used to be the godly. The church now looks like the rest of the world. The church now acts like the rest of the world. We are the problem. We better wake up. The deliverer has come. He is Christ the Lord. He has set us free from sin and death. And he has called us to uniquely be his people. So here's the option the Bible puts forth for the godly. You ready? Obey him and trust him. Obey him and trust him. Obey him to do what? Turn to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. And Jesus came and said to them, not him, he came to them. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. God did not call his church to retreat. He did not call his church to compromise. He did not call his church to fight like pagans or to look for another deliverer. The deliverer has come and he has placed a mandate on his people. Trust me and step forward into a lost pagan world with the gospel. And here's what God's admitting. While you do that, the wicked are prowling around you and the evil are celebrating their evil. But here's the promise God has given to his people, to his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against his church. Now really what this comes down to is, do you believe that or not? Do we believe that or not? Do we believe in a God who saves and a God who never leaves his people? He is always with them, to the end of the age. Now turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter three. This is our growth group text for the week. Now, 
I'm, I'm not gonna, I, I don't have time to give you a long explanation here. But if you studied humanity and culture in the first century, you have to admit when you think about how Christianity emerged, that it is utterly amazing that Christianity emerged in the first century. And I'm not overstating what I'm gonna say next. It was far more wicked and godless than it is now. And not only did it emerge, it thrived and expanded. Why? Why did it thrive and expand? Because God's people trusted him and they obeyed him. That's simple. They trusted him and obeyed him. Second Thessalonians chapter three, verse one. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. I hope you see it in the text. We must trust him. His words are pure. We must obey him. And we rest here, not on our faithfulness. We rest on the faithful Lord. So brothers and sisters, if the righteous are to remain strong, they must call on the Lord. Here's why the enemy's eating our lunch. Everybody listen carefully and I'm not overstating here. The enemy is eating our lunch because we don't pray. Prayer is evidence that you believe the Bible and you trust God. How many of you, I wonder, didn't pick this up since last Sunday? And you wonder why your life unravels around you. God is to be trusted and obeyed and you can't trust and obey a God that you don't know and you don't know what he said. Brothers and sisters, we are a distinct people whom God has saved and called and he has given clear instructions to us and he is to be trusted. Last Sunday night when we gathered for a prayer meeting and I'm not overstating this, was one of the most encouraging services I've ever been a part of in my history of time at Parkwood. I had a stunning moment followed by an overwhelmingly joyful moment. I stood and said, people were in circles all throughout the building, and I said, what I want you to do is just say the name of a family member that's lost that you're praying for. Now, I really thought after a second or two, there'd be a few people share names and we'd be done. We're talking about his church here. And names went on and on and on. I was stunned for a moment. And then hope swept over me. 
God's going to save some of those people in the next few weeks. God's going to save some of those people in the next few months or years. How do I know that? Because God, a part of God's plan is the prayers of his people. Brothers and sisters, is this true or not? If it's true, then we got to trust what it says. And we got to do what it says. We sing the song about the kingdom coming. There's a line in the song that's probably thrown you off before. It goes like this. We are his church and we are the hope on earth. You say, well, Christ is the hope. Yes, Christ is the hope. Listen to me. Through us. We're his redeemed people. We are the salt and life, light. And we will not be salty or light as long as we act like the world. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I trust that you've brought conviction to some in this room who are trusting in something else or someone else, probably themselves. I pray that you would lead them, Holy Spirit, to Christ, to repentance, that they would turn to their sin and trust in you even now as I pray. Lord, you have rebuked us all this morning with this text. As our faith wavers, as we get distracted, as we lament over things that we ought not to lament, I pray that you would bring us back clearly at this moment to trust in you, the faithful Lord, and to obey your word. Lord, as we sing, as you have all morning, I pray yet again, you would fall on us as your people and that we would express this song as a prayer to you the faithful Lord, whom alone can be trusted. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.